friends. Welcome back to The Word is Resistance, a podcast of showing up for racial justice or surge. My name is Nicola Torbett, and this is the podcast where we explore our weekly Christian scripture readings with an eye toward racial justice and collective liberation. We've aimed this podcast at white listeners like me who want to dismantle white supremacy following the leadership of people of color and also taking full responsibility for our own part of the work. Of course, anyone and everyone can listen, and we deeply value feedback from listeners of color and those from diverse faith traditions. And we also acknowledge that as white folks, and especially white Christian folks, we have extra work to do, that it is our responsibility to learn how to resist the forces of white Christian supremacy from which we've benefited and with which we are otherwise complicit. We are digging around, searching for what is useful in the artifacts of a tradition that has too often been used for harm. Together, we are searching for what serves decolonization and collective liberation. Welcome. This week, we're looking at the scriptures for what is called Christ the King Sunday, or in less heavily gendered language, Reign of Christ Sunday. And I'm thinking as we start out, how interesting it is to be marking that particular day just a few weeks after such a historic election in which we've voted, if maybe by thinner margin than we would like, to change the head of this particular nation state. Now, when I first found my way back into a church nearly 15 years ago, for the first time as an adult and as a feminist with a lot of allergy to patriarchy and other forms of hierarchy, I was pretty turned off by this biblical talk of Jesus as Lord or King. Hadn't we had enough of lords and kings and others who made autocratic decisions on behalf of people without consulting them? But my feelings were forever altered when a friend, a black friend, explained to me why Jesus is Lord is a rallying cry in the black church why people in the black church rejoice at the notion that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Because if Jesus is Lord, it means that the white man isn't. It means that the police officer or the courtroom judge or the racist supervisor isn't Lord, that we are called to serve a higher authority than any of those. I can get happy just thinking about it. There's some blessed freedom there. So I did a little research into this Reign of Christ Sunday. Turns out that the feast day was created relatively recently, in 1925, by Pope Pius XI. He called for it, it seems, as a response to the rise of communism in what had just become the Soviet Union, and to what he saw as increasing secularism in the West. The Pope was alarmed at what appeared to be a trend toward nationalism and totalitarianism that was leading even Catholics to believe that their highest loyalty must be to their nation rather than to Christ. Thus, a feast day to remind us that we serve a higher authority. What started as a Catholic feast day has also been adopted by a number of Protestant denominations and is now celebrated on the last Sunday before Advent. In the Anglican Church, Reign of Christ Sunday is sometimes called Stir Up Sunday, technically named for the opening words of the Collect of the Day, which begins, 
Stir up, we beseech thee, O Lord, the wills of thy faithful people, that they, plenteously bringing forth the fruit of good works, may be by thee plenteously rewarded through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Now somehow, over time, the opening words from the prayer, stir up, got associated with the stirring up of Christmas pudding, which has to be made well in advance so that the ingredients have plenty of time to mellow, which I think basically means ferment, before the big day. So stir up Sunday has two important meanings. We stir up souls and puddings. Now I'm not sure that this has any social justice import really, but I just thought it was so weird and wonderful that I had to tell you about it. In fact, I should also tell you that traditional Christmas pudding has 13 ingredients representing Jesus and the disciples, and that it is always stirred from east to west, the direction from which the wise ones came to visit the baby Jesus. See, the great British baking show has nothing on the word is resistance. But this week, seriously, I'm thinking it wouldn't be such a terrible idea to broaden the celebration of Stir Up Sunday. Couldn't we use a Sunday of holy agitation? to borrow the community organizing term, a day to stir up the people for love and justice and pudding all around the world? I don't know, I kind of like it. And I like it especially in the wake of this election when I worry that people who have been activated by the terrors and travesties of the Trump administration will sigh with relief, pull up the blue Biden blanket and drift back to sleep. I've greatly appreciated the Black feminist organizers such as Alicia Garza and Charlene Carruthers, who have articulated so clearly that what we were voting for on November 3rd was not an answer, not an antidote, but a terrain of struggle. As of this recording on November 17th, it looks as if we got the terrain we were hoping for, but it is still just that, a terrain, and struggle we must. Joe Biden is deeply entrenched in corporate interests and deeply shaped by all the assumptions of all the things, white supremacy, neoliberalism, settler colonialism, patriarchy, capitalism. So we're going to have to push him every day. Thus, stir up Sunday. Maybe there's something here in this reign of Christ Sunday that can nourish us for our struggle. scripture this week will be familiar to many of you. It's one of Jesus' greatest hits, so to speak, especially among left-leaning or social justice Christians, as they like to call us on the right. When I saw it was the gospel passage for today, I admit I kind of rolled my eyes. What more could there possibly be to say? But one of the things I love about working on this podcast is that it forces me to ask myself what assumptions I might bring to the text from my own conditioning as a white Western settler that could obscure a deeper understanding of what Jesus was saying. And this time, child, did I get to see myself. 
I hope this exploration will be revelatory for you, too. So here we go. The text is Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. Again, it's probably going to sound familiar, and it's got some repetition to it, as many of these oral teachings do, but try to stay with it anyway. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at the left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food, or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you, or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did it, to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. Then he will say to those at his left hand, you that are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not give me clothing, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, truly, I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So there you have it, the infamous sheep and goats passage in which the goats get a pretty bad name. Apologies to fellow podcaster, Reverend Ann Dunlap, who is bivocational as a goat herd. I've got nothing against goats myself. We are officially pro-goat on this podcast. Anyway, all speciesism aside, this parable always seems pretty straightforward to me. The first zillion or so times I encountered it, I took away what I thought was its message for me, for us, which was something like, better get busy taking care of all these people who need help. My mind would jump erratically from that person at the freeway exit who I pulled around because I was tired and didn't want to rummage for cash in my backpack, to the prison pen pal I haven't written back in a while, to the emergency GoFundMes that I just didn't feel able to give to. I would often fixate on the one thing that is hardest for me, which is working with the curbside communities here, sometimes also known as tent encampments. These are everywhere in Oakland now. We have thousands upon thousands of people living in the streets without housing. It's horrifying. And honestly, it's really hard for me to answer calls for help that involve going to these encampments. See, I grew up with an alcoholic parent and a lot of alcoholism on one side of my family, 
And so being around active addiction is super triggering for me. I don't trust myself to take care of myself around it. And as many people have explained to me, and I believe them, it is really hard to get or stay sober without housing. There's a lot of addiction in these curbside communities. Now saying that, I want to be really clear that I'm not saying that people are without housing because they use. That's an old and extremely harmful trope used to stigmatize people rendered poor by systemic injustice. The causality runs the other way. People self-medicate and self-soothe with substances because houselessness is stressful and traumatizing. I'm also not saying that there's anything wrong with people who use substances or that folks who are in active addiction are less worthy of care. In fact, if you haven't already, I hope you'll go and listen to Blythe Barnow's most recent episode of this podcast, which is from September 27th and is called Moving Toward the Promised Land. I'm so grateful to Blythe's deep love for people who use and for her fierce commitment to harm reduction and advocacy. Her messages make me cry every time. What I'm saying is that I have a problem being around addiction. It's my weakness, and it keeps me from doing what I always thought this passage was asking me to do. So I would always spin out a little on that. It's not that I really believed I was going to hell because I didn't participate in food distributions at encampments. I'm not sure I believe in hell like that, and I'll say more about that later. But this passage has always made me a little uncomfortable. It feels like I'm not quite passing muster here. And the tension between not passing muster and not believing in a God who would send people to eternal punishment, well, it just made me irritated with Jesus. This passage, honestly, truth be told, has always made me crabby. But this week, reading the passage for this podcast, I suddenly realized that my habitual interpretation of the message here, get busy taking care of everyone, is a little white savory. I mean, really, isn't it? The important thing is that we help the less fortunate, a term that has certain connections for me with the phrase, the least of these. We, of course, are the fortunate, the together people, and we need to help the less fortunate be more like us, more, you know, together. We are the helpers, right? We all know people who take this to an extreme, and maybe we've been them, the ones who are always rushing around to every action and taking up every cause, and they talk all the time about how exhausted they are, but there's just so much need in the world. Is this the kind of martyrdom that Jesus is calling us to here? I mean, I'm pretty sure he's supposed to be the Savior, not me. And then suddenly I could see it. I could see what was invisible to me before, shrouded in whiteness. See, white supremacy convinces white folks like me that we are better, even if we're not conscious of it. That's what white supremacy means. We are the superior ones, the ones who know things and can do things and have agency. And from that stance, the moral seeming thing to do is help. But actually, in the scenario I am describing, the one in which my trauma 
keeps me from showing up well at curbside communities, I am the one needing help, not the one who is supposed to be helping. And white supremacy made that really hard for me to see. I'm so indoctrinated to think of myself as an autonomous individual with boatloads of agency that I could not see that it was not my brother, not my sister, but it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. I was as powerless over my triggers as someone else might be over their addiction to alcohol. Wow. And the others who helped me, including my friends in Al-Anon, my fellow organizers, are helping Jesus when they help me. How's that for humbling? What if part of the message of this scripture for white people is to recognize that we need help and that we are powerless to help ourselves and that we have to turn to other people who are better at this interdependence thing to teach us how to accept it, how to ask for help. So this revelation around my unconscious white savior assumptions helped me to see something new in this passage. I had always heard that when the Son of Man sat on the throne in judgment, all the people would be gathered around him and judged as individuals. Individualism is one of the most deeply embedded constructs in the American worldview, right? But that's not what the passage says. It doesn't say all people would be gathered. It says all the nations would be gathered. Or in the RSV, our NRSV version, all peoples would be gathered. The judgment is not of individuals, but of groups who would be judged according to how well they took care of each other. Now, I don't think Jesus was talking about nations in the way we think of them, which didn't really exist at that time. I won't go into all of it, but I went down quite a rabbit hole researching when the modern nation-state developed, which is quite controversial, actually, but happened at the earliest in the 1500s. So Jesus wasn't talking about that, which is good, because I'm not such a fan of nation-states. Did you know that the definition of a nation-state is a state in which most people share a common language or descent? Uh Uh-oh. Doesn't that explain a lot about the hostility in this country right now? Time for us to get our post-nationalism on, but that's probably another podcast. The point is that in this scripture, Jesus was judging not individuals, but groups of people who identified as being in the same cluster and who navigated life together as a body. He was talking to communities It bears saying again that the word you in the Bible is almost always plural. This way of life is designed not for individuals, but for communities. And that brings us to the sheep and the goats. According to an article in Rural Living Today, and gratitude, by the way, to M. Barclay in this week's Liturgy That Matters for that reference and much of this information, goats are more independent than sheep. They will often go off exploring on their own, while sheep 
have a powerful flocking instinct and prefer to stick together. Barclay writes, when something comes to threaten life, sheep turn toward each other. They know they stand the best chance against predators when they're moving collectively. Their survival tactics are not aggressive in nature, perhaps why they get such a bad rap from a patriarchal society, but are gentle and social. Sheep survive by living in awareness that they don't stand a chance alone. I love that. In other words, salvation for sheep is collective. Or, as Reverend Lenny's Pinkert always says, we are not individually salvageable. As sheep, we sink or swim together. That means the question is not, am I taking care of enough people? But are we taking care of each other in community? The model here is not benevolence or unidirectional charity, which is how this passage often gets read through whiteness, but about mutual aid, a term that has come into more mainstream usage during the pandemic. Mutual aid refers to collective efforts to meet a community's needs when the community knows that the state will not do so. It typically involves both a material assistance component and a political education component, so that the work both meets immediate needs and organizes people toward a more liberated and life-giving future than the state will get us. Seen through a collective lens, my trauma around addiction is not such a liability. I can take on another part of the collective survival work. I can be in touch with my friends Carol and Katrina, Talia and Vera, who spend lots of time at the camps and can let me know what is needed. Then I can go to my relatively well-off dog-walking clients and ask them to contribute whatever is needed. I can also, under the leadership of unhoused and formerly unhoused organizers, go to City Hall and advocate for policy changes that would provide housing and other supports for people who have been gentrified out of their homes. I don't have to do what I can't do responsibly because I am a part of a community in which we all have different strengths and weaknesses, passions and triggers. This is collective work. When I think of sheep-like collective survival strategies, I think about court support, how we show up for our people when they are arrested for protesting injustice. I think about the Black Panthers free breakfast program. I think about the Prisoner Education Project on AIDS or PEPA that helped incarcerated people survive the first waves of HIV in New York prisons. And I wonder how mutual aid is developing inside the walls with COVID outbreaks taking off everywhere. I think about 12-step programs and food not bombs. I think about all the many ways that targeted groups of people have organized for their collective survival always. That's some Jesus serving stuff. That's interdependent salvation right there. That's participation now in the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Our world was created for this, for mutually interdependent thriving. And that brings us to one final question we might ask of this passage. What could possibly be the role of a king or a ruler on a throne in this mutually interdependent vision? Brothers, sisters, don't get weary.
read through the lens of whiteness, I think it is almost impossible to understand how deeply subversive this scripture is. I think it completely explodes the whole idea of king as we have understood it, much less one who is passing judgment from on high. See, if Christ is both the least of these and king, that means there is no king in the conventional sense. It's not even that there is a king and it's a poor person or a black person or a disabled person. It's that if there is a king at all, that king is need itself. If there is anything we're going to serve, it is service itself. Service serving service in a mutual dance of self-perpetuating love and care. Has your head exploded? Because mine did, a couple times over, trying to figure out how to write that last sentence. If there is a sovereign ruler at all, that ruler is need. If there is anything we're going to serve, it's service itself, in a mutual dance of self-perpetuating love and care. If this is the true nature of reality, then maybe what we conventionally think of as hell in this parable, that eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, is actually a state of being outside this circular dance of mutual care. And the people in hell are those who imagine themselves above help, those who have separated themselves from community by failing to participate in this symbiotic reciprocity it entails. So this brings us back to Reign of Christ Sunday, created in 1925 as an intervention in a trend toward totalitarianism. Totalitarianism is defined as a system of government that is centralized and dictatorial and requires complete subservience to the state. Within totalitarianism, there's a person or group of people who call all the shots, people who imagine themselves as above help, separate from need and mutual service, all the while, of course, extracting everything they need and more from the people below them. We know something about this in our country, though maybe the totalitarian mechanism here is not just the government, but also the market. Is the reign of Christ a real alternative to totalitarianism? Not if we continue to imagine Christ as a ruler on a throne, autocratically sending some, some to heaven and some to hell. But the fostering of an eternal dance of mutual love and service? That sounds like a real alternative and something worth celebrating on this Stir It Up Sunday, the last Sunday of the church year. As we wind up this episode, I want to invite you into a little visualization exercise. Imagine that Jesus is calling before the throne all the peoples of the world, including the group you belong to. Look around you. What does Jesus look like? 
What does the throne look like? Now look around. Who is with you? Who are your people gathered there with you before Jesus? Name them in prayer right now. Who are your people? When you finished, and you're coming out of the visualization now, ask yourself how diverse in race, gender, class, age, and ability were the people you saw in your group? How are the members of your group taking care of each other in the here and now? What help are you giving and what are you receiving? What are your strengths and weaknesses in that community? If there's an imbalance in giving and receiving, what steps can you take to remedy that? If your group is fairly homogenous, how are you cultivating relationships outside your immediate circle, recognizing that Jesus is to be found in the least of these? What next step could you take in that direction? Not as a helper, but as someone seeking to be in relationship. You might also want to gather some of the people you saw in that visualization, your people, to learn more about mutual aid. There's a new and really practical book out by Dean Spade called simply Mutual Aid, Building Solidarity During This Crisis and the Next. And it's a great starting point. It contains tips for making decisions together, resolving conflicts, and avoiding burnout. It's just a wealth of great information. I'll also put some other good resources on mutual aid in the transcript. Finally, if you're listening to this podcast, I probably don't need to tell you that the political situation we find ourselves in right now is serious, and we need everyone to be doing their part. I'm excited about the work showing up for racial justice is doing right now because we're inviting folks into anti-racist work in powerful and subversive ways. If you're committed to getting white folks on board for dismantling white supremacy, please make a donation to Surge. We split every donation with a movement partner doing important work. This month, that partner is JFREDGE, Jews for Racial and Economic Justice, doing powerful work on systemic issues that affect people's day-to-day -day lives. You can donate online at http backslash bit.ly backslash jfredge surge, all one word, J-F-R-E-J-S-U-R-J. -E or just find our podcast page at showingupforracialjustice.org. Thanks for helping support this podcast and organizing white people to show up for racial justice and the new world that we're building together. That's what I got for you this week. Be sure to tune in next week to hear a resistance word from my comrade, Claire Brown. Believe it or not, that will be the first week of Advent, and so also the first week of our new series, Abolition Advent. You aren't going to want to miss it. Together, we are building up a new world. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for granting us permission to use the song by this name in the podcast. It was written by Dr. Vincent Harding, and here it is being sung by a movement choir practice led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. Finally, I want to thank our sound editor for this week, Max Pearl. Max, 
So much love and gratitude to you always. That's it for now, friends. So many blessings to you for good health, deep transformation, and loving connection as we build up a new world. Until next time, I'm Nicola Torbett.